And as they go, I'll invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 328. I got to thinking this week about what a gift it is that we have a Bible to which we can turn anytime we want. Uh, it's not an exaggeration to say 21st century English-speaking Christians have more access to God's Word than any other generation of Christians in the history of the church. There are still people in the world who do not yet have a Bible in their language, which is why the work of Bible translators is so crucial still. But for us, not only can we read the Bible in our language, we can access it on computers and mobile devices. We can listen to recordings of it when we drive or exercise and the list goes on. I, I remember when I was in high school, I used to carry this little small Bible in my pocket, a little Bible uh, pocket size version. It had tiny print. Uh, some of you uh, who have trouble reading things up close would probably need uh, binoculars to read the print in that thing. Now I have at all times uh, a smartphone that is in my pocket and I have on that smartphone a, a study Bible with notes and everything. It goes with me everywhere. This morning I, I don't want us just to marvel at the access we have to Scripture. I want us to just think about the very existence of Scripture. God did not have to speak to us. He did not have to create us in the first place. And when we sinned, He did not have to send prophets and apostles to tell us about our sin and to call us back to Him. But He did. The very existence of the Bible is evidence of God's goodness and mercy. He reveals Himself to the very people who have rejected His Lordship. This is how David phrased that truth in Psalm 25, verse 8. He said, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. And that truth we hear from David's mouth in Psalm 25, we're going to see in David's life here this morning in 2 Samuel 5. Let's read together 2 Samuel 5, we're going to begin in verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was thirty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned forty years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah thirty-three years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind." who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord the God of hosts was with him. 
And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David in cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibar, Elishua, Nepheg, Jephiah, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. Yeah, I get an A plus for that. <laughs> when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to the rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of, the, of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for how you have spoken and revealed yourself. Lord, we um, agree this morning together that the existence of this book is evidence of your goodness to us. In this, you have revealed yourself. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see what you would have to show us about yourself this morning from this chapter. Lord, give us ears to hear what you would have to say to us by your Spirit. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so it was, it was way back in 1 Samuel 16 when God sent the prophet Samuel to anoint David as king. A lot of time has passed between that private anointing in 1 Samuel 16 and this public anointing in 2 Samuel 5. Now, I want us just to, as a kind of a broad observation. I, I find it helpful to think of this chapter, 2 Samuel 5, as a collage. Okay? When you make a collage, you're not necessarily putting um, a sequence of pictures uh, in, in chronological order, but you're just sort of you have all of these snapshots that give you an overall impression. You may, you may have a certain theme. Uh, the past few years... Um, for Father's Day, Rebecca has gotten me these little books uh, that just have pictures of me and our boys, and I just love looking at them. And they're, they're just, that's, that's the theme, right? It's not necessarily a, a story that's being told. It's just a, here's an impression of, of what it's like to be a dad. That's kind of what 2 Samuel 5 is. Rather than giving us a step-by-step -step chronicle of David's first year as king. You know, the, the, the author of Samuel is not necessarily giving us uh, statistics about, well, here's all the things he built and here's all the people he hired and all those kind of things. Rather than doing that, the author lays out 
these snapshots from the, not just from the early time of David's reign, but from the whole scope of David's reign. Some of the things that the author tells us here in 2 Samuel 5 uh, happened throughout David's reign. Things like him having children and, uh, and even the, the king of Tyre sending uh, messengers to build a house for him. If you, if you dive into the uh, historical records, you realize that that didn't happen in the first week or year of David's reign. That happened really late on, later on in David's reign in the last 10 years of his life. So we're going to see these snapshots. Uh, we're going to see in them an impression of all that God did on David's behalf through the, the course of his reign as king. And we're also going to see all that David did as God's servant. This is a snapshot of what kind of king he was. And this is going to help us to see some truth about ourselves and about God and how He relates to us. So the first thing we're going to start with is what the Lord did. I want to give you five things here that the Lord did for David on his behalf. The first is that the Lord fulfilled His promise to David. We see that in verses 1 through 5. We see the Lord fulfilling His promise to David um, in the end of chapter 4, Ishbosheth, this sort of rival king, had died. And so you have David, who had been recognized as king over one tribe. There were 12. He was recognized as king over one tribe, his own tribe, the tribe of Judah. In chapter 5, it begins by saying, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. So now you have all 12 tribes coming to David probably sending messengers, elders, leaders to speak to him. And they come and they lay out their case for why they want David to be their king. They, they give a number of arguments. They say, we are your bone and flesh. In other words, you are our kinsmen. And one of the requirements that God gave the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 17 for their king is he had to be from among their brothers. They cannot have a foreigner as king over them. So... David fits the bill because he is himself an Israelite. They say in verse 2, Even when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led us out and brought us in. So even when you were not yet, even when we didn't recognize you yet as king, you acted like a king. You have proven yourself to be competent and able to be our shepherd. But the climactic argument that they make in their case, it's right in the middle of verse 2. They say, and the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. That's a pretty good case if you want to make one. The reason we want you to be king is because God said so. Because God said that you would be. You shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. Now, from a human perspective, God has been slow in keeping this promise. He appears to have taken his time. Again, a lot of time has passed between 1 Samuel 16 and 2 Samuel 5. But as Peter said, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. The, the fact that these tribes are here agreeing to this covenant that David is making with them, that very fact is evidence that the Lord has indeed fulfilled his promise to David. The second thing we see the Lord do, we see that He was personally present with David. He was personally present with David. 
We see that in verses 6 through 10. In verses 6 through 10, the author records how David took Jerusalem to be his capital city. The problem is there were people already living there. So David didn't go in and say, okay, here's this unpopulated place. I'm going to go and build a city there. He was going to a place that was already populated, already had people living there. And the inhabitants who lived there before him were called Jebusites. And they thought that their city was this invincible fortress. And they had good reason for thinking that because when you read some of the books leading up to this, like uh, Joshua and Judges, you find that some of the tribes had tried to take Jerusalem. They, some of them had succeeded for a brief time, but they never had any long-term success in, in really capturing Jerusalem. And so that is a problem, and it's a, it's a, a good thing. The problem is Jerusalem is going to be a really hard city to take. It's situated on a, a mountain, uh, mountains are typically hard to take. It was fortified heavily, and because of some of the infrastructure of the city, they, the people who lived there had managed to sort of build these water channel systems underground that fed from outside the city. So even if you try to siege the city and cut it off from outside, they, they still were able to get water in from outside the city. The, the benefit to Jerusalem, though, is no tribe had claimed it. So this is sort of neutral territory. If David goes to plant, some, plant his flag in some, Judah, some city of Judah, well, the other tribes could say, well, that's not fair. You're showing favoritism or something like that. But he goes to a city that was effectively uh, neutral. You can hear the Jebusites taunting David in the middle of verse 6. They say, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. I remember being really confused by this uh, back and forth between the Jebusites and David one time, because what it sounds like is um, the Jebusites are saying something about the blind and lame. You know, there's so many blind and lame people here. I, I don't know why. Um, and then David responds to them uh, by telling his men in verse 8 to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. And that from that day on, no blind or lame people were allowed in. Well, this is not literal. There, there's some figurative language being used here. The point of their taunt when they say in verse 6, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, is our city is so immune to invasion that even if the only people we had to defend it were blind and lame, you could not take our city. That's, that's what they thought of their city. Even if our garrison were, were entirely made up of blind and lame people, you still wouldn't be able to come in here and take our city. And David takes that boastful taunt and he turns it against them, uses it against them. So when he tells his men to attack the lame and the blind. In, in the ESV, uh, it actually puts quotes around that, you know, quote the lame and the blind. He's not literally saying, let's go in there and attack some, some people who can't walk or see. He's talking about the, the Jebusites and, uh, and that sort of thing. So he's, he's not lacking compassion to blind and lame people. He's using figurative language there. Sure enough, David captures the city but the author is quick to point out that the success of this mission was due not simply to David's 
knack for military strategy, but to the fact that the Lord was personally present with him. As verse 10 puts it, David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. That is the fact that distinguishes David from every other human king and leader. That's, that's what distinguishes him from Ishbosheth and Abner and from his own predecessor Saul. The Lord was with David. And that is why he was growing greater and greater. The third thing we see the Lord do for David is we see him establishing David for Israel's sake. The Lord established David for Israel's sake. Now, I want to remind you or inform you, for years before David goes into Jerusalem, for years he had been on the run. He had been forced to sleep in caves and in forests and in the wilderness. He spent over a year living among the Philistines outside the promised land. It has been a long time since David had a permanent home in which to reside in the promised land. With that in mind, I want you to think about how significant it would have been for David personally when, as the author tells us in verse 11, the king of Tyre sent supplies and craftsmen to build a to build him a house. More important than the gesture itself is what David deduces from it. Look at verse 12. And David knew. In other words, because of this gesture from the foreign king, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. So this gesture of respect from a foreign king is intended by God to confirm to David that you are the Lord's anointed. The second half of verse 12 is crucial though. Notice, the Lord established David and exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Not for David's sake, but for the sake of the Lord's people. David was not meant to be like the kings of other nations who lorded over their people and treated them as servants. God made David to be a king so that he could be a servant, not only to the Lord, but also to the Lord's people. So God put David over Israel, not for his own enrichment or empowerment, but for Israel's good. And then four and five go together. The last two things we see the Lord do for David is he guided David and he gave victory to David. We see both of those truths side by side in verses 17 through 25. In verses 17 through 25, the author tells us about two separate occasions in which the Philistines came up against the people of Israel. In both cases, David inquires of the Lord, what should I do? In the first instance, the Lord tells him, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. In the second instance, the Lord tells him, You shall not go up. So in, in, in the first case, God instructs David to attack them head on. In the second case, He tells him to wait. But in both instances, the Lord was guiding David. We see God doing that. The Lord is guiding him. And that, again, is something that God had not done for Saul because Saul had refused to listen to the Lord's guidance. So we see the Lord guiding David, and we also see him giving victory to David in both of those instances. I want you to hear how the author 
balances two complementary truths. Look, for example, at verse 20. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Notice the author says, David defeated them. David says, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me. From a third person perspective, it's true to say, David defeated the Philistines. But David knows that he did so because the Lord had broken through his enemies before him. Notice the same thing in verse 24. This is God speaking to David. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. So who struck down the Philistines? God says that you'll know that the Lord has gone out before you to strike, out, to strike down the army of the Philistines. God says, I'm going to strike down the army of the Philistines. But then the author says, David did as the Lord commanded him, and David struck down the Philistines. So who struck down the Philistines? Did David or did the Lord? The answer is yes. David struck down the Philistines because the Lord had gone out before him to strike them down. So the, the Lord gives victory to David. Not apart from David's work, but through David's work as king. Seeing that balance is going to help us to keep in perspective the second half here, which is what David did. So we've seen what the Lord did in these five ways, and now I want to show you what David did. And we're just going to put all of these here together because we've already seen most of these as we were walking through all that God did on David's behalf. David made a covenant with Israel before the Lord. He took the stronghold of Zion. He took more concubines and wives. He inquired of the Lord, and he did as the Lord commanded him. Now, I want you to notice the overall impression of David's reign is positive. 80%. It's pretty good. David made a covenant with Israel before the Lord. God had fulfilled his promise to him, and so David made a covenant with Israel before the Lord. He took the stronghold of Zion because the Lord was with him to give it into his hand. He inquired of the Lord, and the Lord guided him. He did as the Lord commanded him, and the Lord gave him victory over his enemies. But there's one, one of these things is not like the other, right? You, you have probably done one of those at some point in your life. You look at it. What is the one thing that sticks out here? There's one snapshot that we haven't commented on yet. It's, it's right in the middle of the chapter. Look at verse 13. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. Now we have talked about this issue of David's polygamy before, but I I want to be really clear again in case you were not here or in case you forgot. Just because the text of Scripture describes something that David did, that does not mean God is commending that behavior to us as honorable or worthy of imitating. It's a reminder to us that David is not sinless. 
So when we see that third snapshot that David took more concubines and wives alongside the other four, that he made a covenant with Israel, that he took the stronghold of Zion, that he inquired of the Lord, that he did as the Lord commanded him, we are meant to see that one in the middle as the one that sticks out like a sore thumb, that is not like the others. In a few chapters, David is going to sin egregiously when he commits adultery with a woman named Bathsheba, then he has her husband murdered as a cover-up. What I've been trying to show you over the past few weeks is that sin with Bathsheba does not come out of nowhere. There have been many warning signs. In fact, David's sin in this regard seems to get worse and worse as time goes on. The, the, the first time that he took an additional wife was um, Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel. And she was a widow. And so, you know, there's a way you could look at that and say, well, you know, it, maybe it wasn't the right thing to do, but David was trying to look out for this woman who had been widowed. But then you get into 2 Samuel 3, and you realize David is marrying additional wives as a form of political strategy. He's marrying the daughter of this certain king. He's trying to shore up his alliances, that sort of thing. That's bad. But it's even worse. Here in chapter 5, David is not just taking more wives, but also now we have the word concubines thrown into the mix here. And in case you're not familiar with what a concubine was, a concubine was a woman who lived in a married man's house with whom he engaged in some marital activities, but without actually being married to her. So there are lots of very colorful, crass words we could use for that, but I'll leave those to your imagination 2 Samuel 5.13 is a canary in the coal mine, so to speak, and the canary is dead. <laughs> okay? uh, 2 Samuel 5.13 is like a flashing red light that says, Danger! Warning! God has explicitly forbidden taking more than one wife. And this sin is going to bring an awful lot of trouble to David and by extension to Israel. So while it is true that the assessment of David is generally positive, there is certainly more approval here than disapproval, that does not mean that David is perfect. And we should beware of treating him or anyone else as if they were an idealized hero who is totally above being critiqued. In his commentary on 2 Samuel, Dale Ralph Davis draws out a helpful connection, and I think this is going to sort of help us start to get at how in the world does this apply to us. How in the world do all these snapshots of a king uh, making a covenant with people and going in and attacking a city and having wives and concubines and fighting Philistines, how in the world does that apply to us? Del Ralph Davis is going to help us out here. This is what he says. He says, We may admit that on the whole, David's kingship was admirable and his fidelity to the Lord consistent. Yet we must not doctor the data. We must not sweep away evidence that shows his faithfulness less than complete or his practices controlled by human culture rather than by God's law. Such observations should be deeply instructive. They should check our tendency to Christian hero worship, our passion for becoming so enamored with certain kingdom servants that we fail to remember that they too are sinful people who will inevitably disappoint in some way or another. 
Even David compromises and mars the kingdom over which he rules. Ultimately, the kingdom is only safe in the hands of David's descendant, capital D, who always does what pleases the Father, John 8.29. I want to come back to that thought at the end in just a second, but he says there this observation that, yes, on the whole, David's kingship is admirable, his fidelity to the Lord, his loyalty to the Lord is generally consistent, yet we can't sweep away the evidence that shows his faithfulness not quite complete. His practices are sometimes controlled by human culture rather than by God's law. David says that that should check our tendency to Christian hero worship, where we, we see certain kingdom servants, as he said, as people who are above being sinful. Now, here's how that works in, in practice. It, it works where people who are kingdom servants who you don't know, who you never have any action, interaction with, you, you think of them as if they are these sort of um, larger-than-life, sinless, ideal heroes, like, like the way we sometimes tend to treat David. And the kingdom servants that you do know... You think, boy, he's just—he's not like—he's not like that guy on TV. He's not like that famous pastor of that big church in that big city or whatever. And so, when you see someone up close and they disappoint you or they fail in some way, you think, wow, this guy just must be a loser. He must just be totally um, compromised. The point is, when you actually know the kingdom servant as far as we can know, David, based on what the Holy Spirit has told us, you see that there is no one who does not compromise and mar the kingdom. Ultimately, the kingdom is only safe in the hands of Jesus. God has only ever had one perfect servant, and His name is Jesus. We should not expect of any other human servant the perfection that belongs only to Jesus. So what we see in David is not the picture of a flawless hero, but the picture of a man who was sinful, but still useful to God. Sinful, but useful. That is how we could summarize the big idea of this passage. In God's goodness, He uses sinful servants for His glory. Sinful, but useful. That is something I pray about myself every week. God, I know I'm sinful, but please just let me be useful. And I would commend that prayer to you as well. I want to be very careful in how we apply that truth because the, the emphasis here is not on our imperfection, but on the perfection of God's goodness. Here's how we are sometimes tempted to apply that kind of truth. We sort of shrug our shoulders, say, well, no one is perfect. No one's perfect, as if that somehow excuses sin. Our hope before God is not that everyone is imperfect. Our only hope and plea before God is that there is one man who is perfect. His name is Jesus. 
Make no mistake, our sin resulted in the Son of God enduring condemnation and wrath and shame on the cross. So there's absolutely no excusing our sin. And we should be careful not to treat it carelessly. But we also should not treat sin so greatly that we think that it would somehow disqualify someone from being useful to God. God is in the business of using sinful servants for His glory. If God were not in this business, He would not have any other servants except Jesus. Okay? Because there are no perfect servants except Jesus. What we see in David is the picture of a man who was sinful but still useful to God. So what I mean then is this is actually a very helpful passage for us. David is actually a very helpful case study for us because what we see here is this is somebody who's like us. He sins. He messes up. He's not perfect. And, and I mean, by all means, if I get to the end of my life and 80% of the assessment is positive, I will count that a victory. That's, that's the truth here with David. There are five snapshots that you see here. Four of them are, are pretty positive. One of them is not so positive. So David actually shows us this picture of how can we who are sinful still be used by God for His glory. So we know that that's what God does in His goodness. He uses sinful servants for His glory. But how, how do we ensure that we're one of the sinful servants who He does use for His glory? Because it would be also true to say that God does not use all sinful servants for His glory. So how, how do you walk that line of saying, okay, I know I'm sinful, but how can I be useful? Earlier I mentioned um, Psalm 25, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. You could take that verse and rip it right out of context and say, well, um, the Bible says that God instructs sinners in the way, so I guess I better just keep sinning. But that's not all... That's not all David says in that psalm. I want you to hear what he says in the very next verse. The Lord leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. So the Lord instructs sinners in the way, but then David clarifies in the next verse, the Lord teaches the humble His way. So we might clarify our big idea by saying that God uses humble servants. For His glory. Not servants who delight in their sinful imperfection and just say, well, we're all imperfect, but servants who humble themselves before the righteous perfection of God. Okay, so Psalm 25, 8, good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. Verse 9, the Lord leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. Listen to what David says in verse 10 of Psalm 25. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. To, what does that mean? Because how is it that David can say in one breath that the Lord instructs sinners in the way, and the next breath he says the only people who walk on the paths of the Lord are those who keep His covenant and His testimonies? 
Well, apparently it is possible to be someone who is a sinner and at the same time someone who keeps God's covenant and His testimonies. How do you do that? Because keeping God's covenant and testimonies does not mean perfect obedience. To keep His covenant means that you make use of the means of forgiveness He offers because part of the covenant is, in the Old Testament, here are the sacrifices that you do when you sin. And in the New Testament, it is Jesus saying to His disciples, my, this, this cup, my blood, is the cup of the new covenant. And so here is this for the forgiveness of your sins. So to keep God's covenant does not mean you never break a commandment. It means that you make use of the means that He has offered for your forgiveness. It means that you trust in Christ and you surrender to Him as Lord. So we can clarify our big idea again by saying that God uses servants who trust in Him, who seek forgiveness in Christ. Again, there's, there's not this delighting in sin, but there is a humbly acknowledging sin and pleading with God for forgiveness on the base of the blood of Jesus. And then in Psalm 25, 11, David says, Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. So all in Psalm 25, David is giving us this blueprint of what kind of person does the Lord guide? What kind of person does the Lord instruct? What kind of person does the Lord befriend? David says the Lord befriends sinners. He befriends those who are humble. He befriends those who trust in Him, who... Seek forgiveness from Him. And then He says, those who fear Him. To fear the Lord is to humble yourself to the point that you turn from your sin in repentance. So God's goodness, again, is not an excuse for us to delight in our sin. As Paul says, His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So we can clarify the big idea one last time by saying that God uses repentant servants. Humble Trusting and repentant, sinful servants. For those of us gathered in this room, and for everyone else who's ever lived except Jesus, there is no chance that we could be perfect servants of God. That ship has already sailed because we've already sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But while we are sinful, we can still be useful if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, if we put our trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, and if we walk in repentance and in the fear of God, daily surrendering our lives to Him and asking Him to enable us to reflect His character and do His will. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. And this is our opportunity to respond to the Word of God. And my, uh, my invitation to you this morning is simple. Admit to God that you're sinful and beg Him to make you useful. None of us can change that first part. None of us can say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not be sinful. Because you've already sinned. So that ship's already sailed. But the thing that you can ask the Lord to do is to make you useful. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful that You use sinful servants for Your glory. We're thankful for how we see in the life of David a picture of one like us who was flawed 
and sometimes inconsistent, sometimes uh, did things that uh, broke your commands, uh, sometimes disappointed even himself, I'm sure. And Lord, what we've seen from David here is not the, the greatest that we're going to see from his sinfulness. And yet, Lord, you still used him for your glory because he humbled himself before you, because he trusted in you and received forgiveness from you, and because when he sinned, he repented from it. So God, I pray for those of us gathered here this morning. Lord, we know that we're sinful. I pray that you would make us useful. I pray that you would use us for your glory. God, help us to be vessels in your hand that are ready to be used by you, to, to make your character known, uh, to do your will, and uh, God, to, to, to display both in our actions and our, in our words uh, the glorious gospel of Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Pastor.